Anyways, let's uh, go ahead and get started in prayer today. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, open our hearts and minds as we look at it. Uh, thank you for this great day and this wonderful opportunity. And thank you for your greatest gift of all, your son Jesus Christ, who came to redeem us from our sin. Help us not forget that that's the reason we celebrate Christmas. We thank you for this day again in Christ's name. Amen. Let's, um, before we go on here to pick up where we left off, just a couple of things. We talked last week about the prophetic tradition that the prophets saw themselves in. And uh, just to hammer that home in my reading this week, as I was reading through uh, the book of Jeremiah, um, I came to Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 18, which is interesting. Jeremiah, of course, one of the major prophets because he's lit large. The book is large. In fact, interestingly, Jeremiah is the largest or is the longest book in the Bible. Do you know that? In terms of words, it's the longest book in the Bible. Um, and in Jeremiah 26:18, it talks about Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, "Thus says the Lord: Zion will be plowed as a field; Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house of the house a wooded height." Jeremiah wrote during the, um, right at the end of the Judean nation, Jer- uh, Micah was one of the 8th century prophets that prophesied about 100 years before this. And what did Jeremiah do in this case? He quoted Micah. And if you look at Micah chapter 1, verse 1, it says Micah of Moresheth. So this is the same Micah that we have in our Bible. Jeremiah is quoting Micah. Jeremiah saw himself in the prophetic tradition. Um, the same thing in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. Daniel quotes Jeremiah. Talks about Jeremiah, the prophet, where he read about the 70 weeks captivity. Ezekiel 28, verse 3, talks about the line of the prophets. In fact, uh, Ezekiel 28, 3 talks about Daniel. In Ezekiel, he says Daniel is one of the prophets. And then in uh, Ezekiel 14, 12 through 20, he says if Noah, Daniel, or Job were alive... They would only save themselves. So he's indicating that Job is one of the prophets. The point is, the Old Testament prophets saw themselves in the tradition of prophets. And they all sort of uh, were in this thing together, so to speak, because they all prophesied the same things. And you don't see one of the prophets in the Old Testament just shooting off somewhere um, outside of the prophetic tradition. They all were part of that prophetic tradition. And that's what we talked about last week. Um, let's now pick up with this idea of the extent of the Old Testament canon. We talked about some fancy words, homo legumine. What's that? Same as. Same as. To say the same as. That's everybody accepted these, right? Everybody accepted these. Pseudepigrapha are false writings. Nobody accepted those. All right. Then there's the anti-legumina. What's that? Yeah. They were disputed by some. All right. It's not that they were rejected. They were disputed. There were some questions about it, like Esther. Uh, the name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. So there's a question about, well, is Esther canonical or not? Now, eventually it was considered canonical very early, but some people had trouble with that one. And then we have the fourth category here, the Apocrypha. These are accepted by some. Not all, but some. Okay. Now, the Apocrypha is... We'll talk about the Apocrypha question here. Some of your... Maybe some of the Bibles that you have have the Apocrypha in them, if you're from the Catholic tradition. 
your Bible had the Apocrypha in it. And the whole question is, what do we do with these apocryphal books? Are they scripture or are they not? Some in Christianity accept them as scripture, others, the bulk of Christianity does not. First of all, what is the Apocrypha? These are about 12 books. Um, we have a couple of books, the wisdom books, the wisdom of Solomon and Ecclesiasticus. Um, there's a book called Tobit and Judith. Judith is sort of a romance novel, little story. Um, there's some historical books like First Ezra and Maccabees. Maccabees describes the period of history from around 150 B.C. in the Jewish independence movement. Um, there's some prophetic books. Uh, Baruch. Baruch is the scribe to who? Anybody know, remember that? Who do you write for? Jeremiah. All right. And then there's a letter to Jeremiah, and then there's some legendary books. Um, some additions to the book of Esther, some additional information. Uh, the prayer of Azariah. The prayer of Manasseh, supposedly Manasseh's prayer of repentance towards the end of his life. Bell and the Dragon is an interesting book where Daniel sort of um, uses a little bit of subterfuge to figure out some of the false prophets. Basically, um, people were bringing food to their God and the food would disappear overnight and nobody knew how it happened. So Daniel went and he got some flour and sprinkled it on the floor. So when they got up the next day, they went in there and he saw the footprints of where they had a secret passage. They would go in and take the food out and he exposed the false prophets of Baal, of Bel, which is one of the gods of Babylon. So it's sort of a fun little story, but uh, that's what the Apocrypha is all about. Now these were written, yeah. Before you switch it, that teaching, teaching. Right. teaching, yeah. Now let's under, let's understand a couple of things here. These books are not worthless. All right, it's not like well we, they're just worthless. We don't even need to look at them. Uh, Maccabees is very helpful for the history of the intertestamental time. In fact, we get a lot of our history from that. Um, there was a hist there was a independence movement that occurred right around 150 BC where Israel almost became independent again. And Maccabees talks about the history of that. Um, so that's in, that's helpful. It's important history. Um, the wisdom of Solomon Ecclesiasticus, there's some good teaching in there, but they're not scripture. All right. There's good teaching, but it's not scripture. Now let's look at some of the reasons people accept the Apocrypha. Um, there's some New Testament allusions to the Apocrypha in Jude 14 and 15. I think there's a quote there for Ecclesiasticus, where it appears that he is quoting from that book. Also, 2 Timothy 3.8 um, appears to be an allusion to some of the apocryphal um, writings. When you look at the earliest complete manuscripts, which would be, here's, here's a gold star question, what is the earliest complete manuscript we have of the entire Bible? Remember what, what when that was? No, not Dead Sea, that's the Old Testament. All of it. Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. That's all of the. That's the old and new. Okay. The Dead Sea Scrolls are the Old Testament. The first complete manuscript we have of the whole Bible, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, did include these books. There were they were in there in between the two testaments. Early Christian art. That should be. Art, not R, <laughs> art, depicts scenes from the Apocrypha. If you go to a Christian art gallery, often you can see artworks from the um, 
that, that, that are from the apocryphal books like the book of Judas. Um, some of the early church fathers accepted the apocrypha. Augustine thought they were canonical. Who's Augustine? Yeah, he was one of the great theologians of the third, you know, three hundreds. He quote he uh, accepted these books as scripture. Uh, the Council of Trent in 1546 proclaimed the apocrypha as canonical. Now, this is an important one here. Council of Trent is like the council, the Catholic council to end all Catholic councils. Basically, what it did or what it was, it was a council that was called in response to the Protestant Reformation. And uh, Council of Trent is still in force today. I don't know if you knew that or not. Vatican II did not overturn the Council of Trent. You go out online and actually get the Council of Trent. Some of the things that the Council of Trent, for example, does is proclaim an anathema or a curse on anybody who feels that they can know that they're saved or not. You're not allowed to do that. You can't know for certain. They say if you know that, you're damned. That's, that's the Council of Trent. Um, it, also, it affirms all of the major Catholic doctrine. And uh, one of the problems is there was an argument there about the Apocrypha, and most of the delegates to the council, what, did they, what do you think they said about the Apocrypha? They probably said it was of significant uh, interest, but uh, uh, as well, well as it had historical mm -hmm. uh, historical, needs, but also uh, it may have referred to Okay. It's interesting. Most of the delegates rejected the apocrypha of Scripture. Most of them did. Most of the Catholic people there rejected it. But the Pope said, I don't care what you do, it's in. So it was really put in by papal edict. It wasn't because all of the guys got together and thought that it should be Scripture. It's because the Pope said it would be. And the reason for that is very simple, because there are some passages in the apocryphal books that support the sale of indulgences, and that was a big moneymaker for the Catholic Church. Sale of indulgences, prayers to the dead also are alluded to in the apocrypha. And that was also a big part of Catholicism. And so this was put in not by um, consent of the Church, but by papal decree. This, this, this was put in there, in the Catholic Bible. Um, the New Testament uses the Septuagint, and the Septuagint has the Apocrypha in it. Alright, so that one of the arguments is, well, if we quote the Septuagint, that means the Septuagint is Scripture, and since the Septuagint includes the Apocrypha, we have to accept that as well. That's the argument going on there. Um, some non-Catholic denominations use the Apocrypha. For example, Anglicans. The Anglican Church uses it. Anglican is the Church of England. But where did the Church of England come from, if anybody knows their history? That came, yeah, it was basically Catholic. Um, they replaced the Pope with Henry VIII as the head of the church. Basically, it's the same kind of thing. Which had Greek mythology and also uh, Oriental Yeah, the whole, the whole, all of it. And some of the Apocrypha was found among the texts of the Dead Sea community. So they had some of these Apocryphal works there. These are all used in, in support of that. Hello? Yeah. Uh, Eastern Church uses the Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to the Eastern Church question. Okay. 
they included it, <coughs> was it not included prior to this council? It was not considered scripture. It was part of the writings, but it was not considered scripture. There was a difference between the Apocrypha and the New and Old Testaments. After the Council of Trent, they said, no, it's all scripture. That's basically what happened there. And again, the, the, the Apocryphal books, they were accepted by some, but not everybody accepted them. All right. And here's, let me ask a question about the Septuagint. You say, well, why was it included in the Septuagint? Well, who, anybody know their history? Who was behind the Septuagint? The translation. The Greeks. Particularly who? Alexander the Great. And, and the whole, what he started with the, you know, making these libraries all over the world. And they wanted to include all of the religious works. So, if you're a pagan Greek person and you're translating the Hebrew Bible and you have these other books, what do you do? You make a determination as to what... Yeah, you include them. As, you know, I say, well, I don't want to not include them. I'll just include them in there. All right. It was not because they were included on a religious level. It was a literary reason that they were included in the Septuagint. It was not because a bunch of theologians sat down and said, hey, we need to include these. It's because the, the, the pagan Greeks who were translating the Old Testament into Greek had these other books and they just included them along with it because they didn't know any better. All right. Let's look at the con of this. Um, the New Testament never cites an apocryphal book as canonical. It never says it's canonical. It never says it's scripture. Now, that's a far cry from what Christ did with, like, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and all these others. Um, you know, Christ said, uh, talked about Adam and Eve and the law. And he, he, it's very clear that Christ considered the Old Testament, as we have it, our 39 books, as scripture. This other stuff was never quoted as scripture, as canonical. There may have been an allusion to it, but it was certainly not quoted as canonical. All right? The Septuagint may obtain the Apocrypha, but it doesn't mean it was canonical. Alright, that's what we just talked about. Alright, it was, just because it included it does not mean that the authors thought it was scripture. It's just, it was a literary work along with the rest of them. That's how they saw this. Alright? It was the church that finally got together and made it canonical. Right, right. And, and we feel that was inspired also. Yes. 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 I'll get to that. I always hate that. You know, I'll get to that. But we'll get to that. All right. My spelling is horrid here, isn't it? I got to go back and spell check these things. Man. It says although the Apocrypha was contained in early translations of the Bible, that does not mean it was considered canonical by the first-century Christians or by the entire church. Um, Early translations may have included these because they were accepted by some. And the idea there was, well, well, we'll just include them in case they'll be accepted. All right? But it does not mean that the early church necessarily accepted all of them. When it comes to art, art's a bad uh, means for determining canonicity. Just because they depict a scene out of a apocryphal book does not mean it's canonical. That's a bad use of it. Yeah, you go to Louvre. You go to the Louvre and you see a lot of pictures from the Apocrypha, stories from the Apocrypha. One of the big ones is Judith, um, the book of Judith. Um, many earthly church fathers did not. Some did, but many did not. Just because some did does not mean all of them did. All right? Many, many of the founding early church fathers didn't. Um, no. Augustine wavered. Um, he sometimes thought they were and sometimes didn't. And 
he sort of wound up saying that they're not scripture scripture, but they're a step under scripture. That's what the deuterocanonical means. They're not scripture scripture, but they're very important, but they're not worthless. Do these possible books include doctrine? Yes, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. That's the reason we reject them. The Council of Trent was in response to the Protestant Reformation. And the Apocrypha was included to support some of the errant doctrines. And again, the big one being the sale of indulgences. You've got to understand that back in the 1500s, the sale of indulgences is the engine that drove Catholicism. It, it's what kept it solvent. Going into town and selling years off of purgatory for money. Um, that was, that's what sparked the Protestant Reformation in the first place. When Tetzel came in and started selling indulgences. Um, so... Yeah, and, and they wanted to include that because, and I don't, I, I don't know the reference in the Apocrypha, but I think it's in, um, I think it's in the book of Tobit, I, I, might be, I might be wrong on that, that supports their sale of indulgences. Um, the use of Apocrypha among non-Catholic churches is uneven. Just, you know, the Anglicans might have it. Other denominations reject it altogether. It's very uneven. Um, and just because some Apocrypha was in the Dead Sea Scrolls does not mean anything because there's a lot of other stuff there that we don't accept as canonical. They had a whole menagerie of things in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Alright? So just because they copied it doesn't mean it's there. So why do we reject the Apocrypha? Theologically, why do we reject the Apocrypha? Well, it was never accepted by the Jewish community. That's a big one. The Apocrypha would be part of which testament? Old or new? Old, all right. The Jewish community never accepted the Apocrypha as canonical. They ended their canon when Malachi 84:44. That's that's the end, all right. And that's universal all the way all the way down the line. None of the Jewish rabbis, no Jews, accepted the Apocrypha as scripture. It was not accepted by Christ or the early church. You don't see Paul using it. You don't see any of the church fathers using it. The founding fathers. Christ never quoted from it. It is not considered scripture by them. Most, and that's an important thing, most of the early church fathers accept, rejected it. You might find one here and one there and one over there, but, but when you looked at all of them, most all of them did not accept it as scripture. Here's an important thing. No church council accepted the Apocrypha as, can, as canonical. What is a church council? That's when the church gets together as a whole to answer some theological issue. And we have a bunch of these canons because when they get together, like the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, when these councils got together, they listed the books that they thought were canonical and the Apocrypha was not one of them, not in there. Um, There's only one in the 4th century that questioned whether it should be included. Jerome, who's Jerome? Any Catholics in here? What did Jerome write? Who's he behind? The Latin Vulgate. He's the writer of the Vulgate. And he did not include, he rejected it as apocryphal. He included it, but he didn't accept it as canonical. Alright? And he's the one that wrote the Latin Vulgate that goes back to the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD. Vulgate is the Latin translation of the Bible used by the early church. It was the Latin translation. He's a, he's a, church father and he was behind the translation 
of the scriptures into Italian, not Italian, in the Latin. Okay. All right. And the Vulgate forms the basis of the Douay Reims version, which is used by Catholic Church today. All right. It's the it's the Latin translation of the Bible. All right. Um, many Roman Catholic scholars rejected the Apocrypha. Again, most of them did not accept it. It was put in there by dictate. Um, and they, they, they did not think it was scripture. Um, many Protestant denominations reject it. The Apocrypha does not claim inspiration. No one has, you, know, you look at the Old Testament. What does it say? Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. You look, read the Apocrypha and there's no thus says the Lord in there at all. The Apocrypha doesn't even claim canonicity, whereas the Old Testament scriptures and even the New claim canonicity. It does not. Esther does not have the name of God in it, but you see the hand of God in Esther. All right, and Esther was written in Hebrew and was considered part of the Jewish canon long before the Apocrypha was ever written. You can, in, the, in the book of Maccabees, historically, you can see God's hand doing things. All right? But the Maccabees does not claim inspiration. It does not claim to be inspired. All right? Two different issues. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Um, it, Right. Yeah, and the point here, you know, I would encourage you, actually, if you're interested in this, go get a copy of the Apocrypha and read it for yourself. And you will very quickly see that there is a marked difference between it and Scripture. You know, you don't, it doesn't, it's not going to take you very long to see, wait a minute, there's Scripture and then there's this, and this is not Scripture. You know, I'm not making it up, you can see that. Um, it contains historical errors. Um, there are several historical blunders in the book of the Apocrypha. One of them says Nebuchadnezzar was king of the Assyrians. Well, I think it's Assyrians. Well, he's not king of the Assyrians. He's king of the Babylonians. But it says very clearly he was king of the Assyrians. Um, that's a historical error. What do you know about the scripture that you have? No history errors in it. All right. Um, the Apocrypha repeats materials elsewhere in canonical writings. It doesn't add anything new to our understanding of scripture, but it does add extra doctrines nowhere else taught in Scripture, like prayers to the dead and things like that. That's nowhere taught in the Scripture. And yet it adds those things. There's no prophecy in the Apocrypha. The Apocryphal books don't have any prophetical predictions at all. And that what is common in the Old Testament? All over the place. You know, Almost every book in the Old Testament has some kind of prophecy in it. And these don't have anything. Yeah. Nothing is added regarding messianic truth. It doesn't tell us anything more about the Messiah at all. Um, and the Apocrypha has not received the scripture by the vast majority of Jews and Christians. The, the point here, folks, is that you can find a person here, a person there, somebody over there that accepts it. But when you look at Christianity as a whole, the church as a whole, it was never accepted as scripture. It just never was. It was never thought of as scripture. And coupled with the historical and theological errors, it was rejected. All right. So the question is, is, is the apocryphal part of the Bible? The answer is no, it's not. Is it interesting? Sure it is. 
Is it fascinating reading to some cases? Yeah, but it's not scripture. And any Christian who really reads it, and I, I have read it, by the way, there's a marked difference between it and the scripture. You, you can just tell that there's a difference. Is our Old Testament an exact parallel to what's currently used by Jews? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, the only difference is we split the books up differently. They have the, it's the same material. It's the same text. It's just that they put some of the books together, whereas we split them apart. They put them together. So, but it's the same. It's the same thing. No, the Talmud is the is the commentary. The Tanakh, it's called T A N A K H, is the Hebrew Bible that they use. So it's the Torah. Yeah, it's the Torah, the writings, and the prophets. All right. And Christian Jews would really be. Probably informative because they still carry a lot of the old tradition. Yeah. Uh, really, if you even have a sermon here mm-hmm. from a Jewish Christian. So that's the Old Testament canon. It was very early on solidified. There's really not been a whole lot of debate on that over the years. Um, you have the books that God wanted you to have. And behind all of this canonicity stuff, who's guiding it, anyways? God, yes. Yeah, God, the Holy Spirit. All right. So, you know, God's not going to say, boy, you know, they missed book number 40. You know, and they've been without it for 2,000 years. I mean, you'd have to really have a low view of the providence and sovereignty of God to think that somehow God could not get one of the books that he wanted in there, in there. All right. So there's that issue as well, that God sovereignly controls the contents of Scripture. Do the apocryphal have a weaker manuscript uh, history? Um, it was, it, the the was written in Greek originally. All right? And it came about during the intertestamental times. And we know of it because of the Septuagint and, and um, really from the Septuagint. And yet it does have a much weaker, much weaker textual basis. We don't have nearly the number of manuscripts of the Apocrypha that we do of the New Testament. Not even close. All right? So yeah, it is weaker. In that, in that sense. Alright, so let's shift gears now and we'll talk about the New Testament canon. Do we have the right 27 books? That's the question. Are we missing something? Alright. What were some of the stimuli, some of the reasons for the development of and the official recognition of the New Testament canon? Alright. And there are three of them here that, that go along. One, there's an ecclesiastical reason. There was a need to define the, the canon of the New Testament so as to know those books that were to be publicly read and those that were not to be publicly read. In the early church, how many people read? Not many, right? So which ones do we read? Most people had the scripture read to them. So there was an ecclesiastical church need to determine, okay, which are the books that we should be reading to the people and which are not? Alright, so there's a, there's a push to find those books that were considered authoritative and important for the early church. All right? And that's what drove this thing here. All right? To get a hold of whatever ones. But if I have books, you know, if I'm a church in Greek, you know, somewhere in Asia Minor, and I have some manuscripts, which one am I going to read to my people? Am I going to read First Timothy, or am I going to read to Shepherd of Hermas, or something like that? And there was a push, there was a pressure early on to say, okay, what are the books that we should be reading our people because they don't read themselves, they don't have, you know, the ability, their, their literacy rate was very low, so which ones do we accept? 
That's one of the things that drove it. Another thing was to a theological reason. Um, what books do we, should we study and which books do we consider binding and authoritative? I mean, if this book says something, do we really need to do it? Is that the word of God or not? So very early on, there was a desire to know what books should we be reading and which books are authoritative and binding. Which are the books that we need to really pay attention to and do what's written in them? Because there's a lot of writings out there. Again, there's, there's hundreds of these books floating around all the way from the, you know, the Apocalypse or the, the Gospel of Judas all the way to the Gospel of Thomas and everybody in between. Which ones do we want to use and which ones do we consider to be theologically sound and binding? So there was a reason to do that. Then politically, Rome was ordering the destruction of Scripture. So if the Roman soldiers come to your door and demand your religious writings, what are you going to give them? Are you going to give them the Gospel of Judas or are you going to give them the Gospel of Matthew? Judas. Using that as an example. The Gospel of Judas being that one they just sort of found that made Judas out to be the hero of Christianity. All right. The whole point here, there's a lot of pressures forcing the early church. Okay, we've got all of these writings. Which are the ones that we need to pay attention to? Which are the ones that we need to listen to? All right. You had Gnostic writings coming up. Every time we turn around, there's another you know, new sect coming out of Christianity. And there's a real drive to need to know what is considered scripture and what is not. The Apocrypha was part of the Old Testament, but it was written in the intertestamental time, about 200 BC, 200 to 100 BC. It doesn't have anything to do with New Testament. No. It's the Old Testament. The Apocrypha is an Old Testament canonical issue, not a New Testament canonical issue. Well, there are a New Testament Apocrypha as well. Apocrypha is just books that were accepted by some. There's a group that's, that's considered part of the Old Testament, which are the Apocrypha that we talk about. There is New Testament Apocrypha. No. There's two kinds of Apocrypha. There's the Old Testament Apocrypha that we've just talked about. There's New Testament Apocrypha that, is not, that we haven't talked about yet. The Old Testament. Yeah, the Old Testament Apocrypha, that was written. The, the, the ones that are included in certain versions of the Bible, that's the Old Testament Apocrypha. There is New Testament Apocrypha as well. And again, Apocrypha is just a general term to, to talk about books that were accepted by some. There are some New Testament writings that were accepted by some, but not all. Old Testament Apocrypha, not the New. Yeah, why would we be accepting it? Yeah, so that, that's really one of the major arguments against it. All right, but there's a pressure here to determine the... Now, now again, when we talk about this, remember there's some short list questions to ask. Remember we talked about it getting to a short list? If I got a big pile of manuscripts all over the place, which ones do I focus in on? Well, which ones are written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle? That's the ones I would probably go to first. If I have a bunch of books, I have no idea who wrote them. I'd set them aside and I'd look at the books that were written by the apostles who are the foundation of the church, right? Paul said the apostles are the foundation of the church. So if someone was written by Paul and I knew it was written by Paul, I would consider that much greater 
or give it much greater weight than somebody written by a no-name. All right, that's one of the shortlist things. All right, um, so there are some shortlist questions that were asked, but it's still you still have a big pile of these. So how did they come about? Well, you had a selection. There's a selection process, and again, who's superintending this whole process here? Church behind the church is Holy Spirit, who's guiding this process. Um, for example, uh, even early on, Luke says there's some non-authentic books. In his prologue to Luke, he talks about he wants to write down a. He says, "Most excellent Theophilus, I want to write down the history of all Jesus began to say and do." And he seems to hint that there was some other stuff out there that's being written, all right, that was not true. Now, if you're Satan, what would you like to do? Mess it up. Mess it up. And, the, and the more junk you can get flying around out there, the more confusing it is for people and the easier it is to follow up the truth. And Luke even hints that there were some of these things floating around. Paul warned about a false epistle that was written in his name, remember? He said, you know, I don't want you to think as though you've gotten a letter from us because I didn't write it. And evidently in 2 Thessalonians, they had gotten a letter that really confused them. And they were really concerned and upset because they thought Paul had written it. And Paul says, no, I didn't write that. So even very early on, I'm talking about during the writing of the New Testament, you have these spurious books being <coughs> floating around here. And, uh, oh, go ahead. <laughs> um, then what kind of statement is the verse in John that says, that's apostrophe, which is an exaggeration. It's just a yeah. He's just saying, you know, there's so much that Jesus did, we couldn't write it all down. But we've written some of it down. You've yeah. okay. written some of it down. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, Satan takes advantage of the ignorance of most because they don't read it. They just take somebody else's mm -hmm. word for the scriptures and what the Bible says and doesn't say. Therefore, I say that to say it wasn't until 300 and something something that the Gnostic Gospel of Judas was written, but people who don't know any better say, aha, because I've had some people say to me, that see there you misinterpreted Judas and blah 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 see what he really did and who he really was and they don't even know that Judas was long dead before the book was yeah. thought that's an important that's, that's really an important um, thing that Sammy just said one of the problems that you have when you read not when you read when you watch the History Channel Discovery Channel is they want to lead you to believe that the early church was completely theologically in chaos and we just happen, what we have here just happened to win out. Alright, we just happened to have this version of the gospel. But there were other valid, equally valid, equally important versions floating around. Like the gospel according to Peter as opposed to the gospel of Paul. That's one of the things they float around where Peter, you know, he believed in this works kind of thing. And Paul believed in grace alone. And Paul won the day. And Peter got left out in the cold. And that's why the church... You understand what's going on here. They're, they're trying to say that the early church theologically was chaotic. That's not true. Okay? The true church of God was never in chaos. There was a lot of chaos happening around them, but it was not chaos within the church. All right? And so when you have these spurious writings like Judas and Thomas and the Apocalypse of Moses and all this other junk, no one ever accepted that. That was always considered outside of the church. It's not like... 
you know, what's interesting is when this gospel of Judas popped up, everybody says, see, the church has followed up the understanding of Judas for 2,000 years. Wait a minute. You've got one book obscurely written that somebody found, and you're going to overturn all of church history and all the early church fathers, everything, on the basis of that one thing? That shows the ignorance of people. Folks, this is not, you got to understand something about History and Discovery Channel. These are not people wanting to know the truth. These are people trying to destroy the truth that's there because they don't want it. You realize that. They don't want to accept the Bible as the Word of God, so they're going to find anything to deny it. They're going to make it up if they have to. Because that's the way men are. Men do not want the truth. It's, it's willingly ignorant. Anybody that goes back and looks at the textual tradition and looks at the, the, the formulation of the canon and what the early church taught, it is a consistent whole. It's not chaos. And there's no indication that there was chaos. And so these, these books, you don't even need to give them a second thought. This Da Vinci Code baloney, that's somebody came up with that. It's made a movie, it sold a lot of books, made somebody a lot of money, but there's no truth in it. Because people reject the truth. You've got to understand that. One of the difficulties I think we have is we think, or I used to think, that a lot of these guys that are professors of religion and, and you know, these guys that put these shows together, that um, they are theologians, they really want to know the truth. They do not. That's the point. They don't. They've figured out what the truth is and they're going to twist everything to make it be that way. Just look at when you talk about the evolutionary creationism debate and where they talk about the facts of evolution. What facts of evolution are there? There aren't any. You understand that? There aren't any. Prove to me that we came from a monkey. You can't. You can't. You can't prove that. There's no scientific evidence, but it's a fact. And anytime anybody says anything other than that, you think they're a, a, a nut job. People reject the truth, folks. And when it comes to biblical truth and canonicity and the truth of the Word of God, listen, Satan wants to destroy this book. He'll do everything he can to do it. And the more mud and the more stuff he can get up in the air and the more questioning he can get people to do, the easier it is for him to pull that thing off. And we've got to understand that God, the Holy Spirit, and superintended not only the writing of this book, but the collection of it, the preservation of it, and the transmission of it. And he's not going to foul that up. God wants us to know the truth. He's not going to leave some, some necessary book out of the scripture that we forgot about. He's not going to do that. This, this, is, this is the Holy Spirit working here. Okay? I get on my soapbox a little bit, but it's, it's really important to understand that. Don't look at these History Channel and Discovery Channel people as scientists. They're not. They're, they're pagans who deny the Scripture as the Word of God, so they will come up with anything, anything, to deny that. <coughs> and we're going to see that in our next section of the class. So Gnosticism is live and well. It's live and well today. You've got all kinds of it. The, the New Age movement is basically a Gnostic thing. It's still there. It ain't going away. All right? But what you have, in, 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 when you see the development of the canon, you see the, the selection, you start seeing a selection process where there's, very early on, there's an understanding that there were some good books and some bad ones. And then you see the reading of the authentic ones. It was an integral part of Christian worship. When the early church got together, they read the scripture and they expounded it. What did they read? What they thought was scripture. 
Alright, they didn't read just anything. Alright, and over time, what happens over time? Over time, you see the sorting out process. You see, when all these churches got together, they said, well, we're all reading the Gospel of Luke. Well, what about the Gospel of Thomas? Well, we don't read that one at all. We don't, we, we, we reject that. We, we accept Luke. And what about Mark? Yeah, we read Mark as well. We read Matthew and we read John. And, and you see these, these 27 bubbling up to the top, constantly bubbling up to the top of what the early church was using when they got together in worship. There was a circulating collection of books. For example, Paul, in Colossians, Paul instructs that the letter be read in Laodicea and that the letter to Laodiceans be read in Colossians. Now, where was Colossae and Laodicea? They were close together. They were sister churches. They were a few miles apart. All right? And in fact, many people think that the letter to Laodicea is our letter of Ephesians. All right? A circular letter. And then, even in the New Testament, you have... The scripture quoting itself. Peter says Paul was scriptural. Alright? And Peter, not Paul, but Paul quotes Luke as being scripture. And you see, even within the New Testament, they're starting to quote one another. They see themselves in the tradition of the, of the church. The church tradition. Even the writers of the New Testament saw themselves within that. Alright? One of the reasons the Gospel of Thomas wasn't accepted is because in our Bibles, Thomas's name is Thomas Didymus, mm-hmm. and Didymus means twin. Mm-hmm. But in the Gospel of Thomas, he the claim is made that he's the twin of Jesus, which is like automatically stupid. Yep, <coughs> that is my phone. <laughs> it's my mom calling. I'll ignore her for now. All right. You can tell her that later on. Um, when you look at the New Testament canon, there's a confirmation of it in this way. The early church fathers, taking class, all, all of them quote the 27 books that we have. So if you look at the early church fathers, Irenaeus, Polycarp, Clement, these guys that followed the apostles, all of them quoted our 27 books. Again, again, in fact, there's so many quotes of our 27 books that you can almost reconstruct the New Testament from the quotes of the early church fathers. They saw these books as being canonical. That's what they quoted in their letters and in their teaching. Early translations include all the current 27 books. For example, the early Syriac translation of the New Testament contained our 27. Jerome's Latin Vulgate contained our 27. All of these contained the 27 books that we have. So when you look at the 1st and 2nd century and the translations of the Bible, these are people that translating the scriptures into a language. What are they selecting? Our 27 books. All right, they're not selecting these others. They're selecting these. Um, early list of the canon. Um, and this is a list. These are people that sat down and said, these are the books that we consider scripture. And they list some of these books out. Um, we have the Muratorian Fragment, which is the earliest list we have of the canonical scripture. I think that's about 150 A.D. where it lists our, most of our books. The Martian um, canon includes Luke and some of the other books that we have. Then you look at the early church councils. All of them take our 27 books and say these are the ones that we consider as scripture. Now again, this was not them selecting. You understand the difference between selecting and recognizing. It's not that they sat down and said, okay, we've got 500 books here. Which ones are we going to include? That's not the way it worked. They got together and said, 
what do you recognize? What are you using as scripture? And you find again and again these 27 books bubbling up to the top of the list. The others weren't. These 27 were. And again, who's behind that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is superintending this. And, and, and you see this as a consistent whole. You don't see 28 books. You don't see 26 books. You see these 27 as being that group. Okay? So when you look at the extent of the New Testament canon, there's some books that are accepted by everybody. Homo logumene. Accepted by all. Um, no one question the books of the New Testament except these um, seven of them right here. There's a question on them. So 20 of the 27 books are just no questions asked. Luke, Matthew, Mark, John, yep, Romans, yep, Galatians, yep. All those are accepted. All right. There's a whole bunch of scripture that was rejected by everybody. Pseudepigrapha. There's a lot of these floating around. Some of the Gnostic Gospels are part of Pseudepigrapha. All right. Um, if the Gospel of Judas was in written at this time, it would have been rejected as well. There are. This is just a list of some of the New Testament Pseudepigrapha that we have. Um, you have the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of the Ebionites, Gospel of Peter. You got various uh, Acts. These are like the you know the history of these people, like the Acts of Peter, John, Andrew, Paul. Um, there's a lost epistle, the Corinthians. Some apocalypses here talking about some future events. Um, these are all pseudepigrapha. Sort of interesting reading, but they're not scripture. And by the way, if you go read this stuff, you can say, you know, there's a difference between this and John. There's a difference between this and Matthew. They're, they're, these are not scripture. You can tell right offhand that there's something uniquely different about these. That's good to see that there was that kind of a discrimination that... that just because it has a name perhaps labeled to the right. epistle, that it would be uh, inspired. And here's another thing, to, just as an aside, going back to what Sammy said earlier on, one of the things that the Discovery and History Channel like to do is say, we are smarter 2,000 years later than the people were 100 years after the church. Now, we, we, we are better able to determine what is canon and what isn't than the people who are actually there. You understand that? We're further away from the past. But that's, that's, the, that's the underlying mentality. When somebody comes along with a screwball notion saying, well, we're going to put Judas in there. He's really the hero. Okay, we can figure out 2,000 years later that that should be included, whereas all of the early church fathers, all the early church councils, all of that decided it wasn't, and we know better than they. That's the, that's the arrogance that some of these so-called scholars have. That we know better what Paul was thinking than Paul knew what he was thinking. All right? Yeah. And then scripture after that, of course, is elongated as specifically as you get into John, I believe, which is 980 roughly. But still, you had people alive who knew Jesus. Exactly. And so, there you know, would be your credence. Yeah. You know, you have the New Testament books. One talks about matters of history. Look, there are people alive reading these that could tell you whether it's true or not. You know, they, they're, they're eyewitnesses to the events. And then us 2,000 years later, how can we know? Yeah, that's the problem. But see, we want to throw all of that out because we know better. We're smarter. That, that's the mentality, unfortunately. to 1990, 
people were alive who were alive in 1933 yeah. who could talk about the, the Great Depression or whatever happened mm-hmm. in that. Because they were part of it. They lived it. You know, and now we now I know more about the Great Depression than somebody lived through it. I don't think so. But that's the arrogance you see. Let's look at the um, the anti-logumina. This is the books that you know. There's some question about Hebrews was questioned, and the reason it was questioned because there's no clear authorship of Hebrews. Again, what made a, what caused the book to go on to the short list? Written by a apostle or someone known by an apostle who wrote Hebrews nobody knows they guess well maybe it's Apollos maybe it's Paul maybe it was Barnabas we don't know exactly who wrote Hebrews so it was a question and that's why it was questioned there was an uncertainty in the authorship but is Hebrews scripture sure it is you read the book of Hebrews you can tell very clearly that it is scripture James um, there is an apparent contradiction between what James says in James 2 about faith and what Paul says in Romans 4 about faith. But again, it's an apparent contradiction. What does James say? James says Abraham's faith was proved by his offering of Isaac. What does Paul say? Abraham's faith was proved by him believing God. Well, which one's right? Well, they both are. From God's perspective, when was Abraham justified? When he believed. How do you know he was justified? How do I know he was justified? Because he did something about it. He offered his son. That's how I know. It's not that that caused Abraham's justification. That proved it. And that's what James is trying to say in James 2. James 2 is saying nothing more than if you really believe, it's going to show. And if it doesn't show, you ain't believed. Yeah. That's all he's trying to say. So, if you understand what's being said, there is no... There is no d- dispute. By the way, Martin Luther had a problem with James. He called it a right straw-y epistle. He didn't like it because he saw this straw-y, S-T-R-A-W-Y, straw-y epistle. Yeah. Um, and it was because of this. He, he had problems with this, this concept. Um, Second Peter was considered not to be genuine. Is not to be genuinely Peter. But if you look at Second Peter and First Peter, they go together hand in glove. They, they fit together. Um, second and Third John were not considered to be genuine epistles of John. In fact, early, early canons didn't have these in it. But the reason they didn't is because they were all considered part of First John. All right? They were considered just to be the same work, sort of like the Twelve in the Old Testament. Jude was questioned basically by its use of the assumption of Moses. There, it's a quote out of the Old Testament book of the Assumption of Moses, which talks about the devil disputing over the body of Moses. All right? They said, well, it can't be canonical because it quoted an apocryphal book. Well, can an apocryphal book be right in some cases? Sure it is. But that doesn't mean it's scripture. Right? I mean, Paul quotes Euripides. He's a Greek poet in Acts 17. Does that make Euripides canonical? Does that make his work scripture? No, he just quoted the guy. I mean, he could do that. So there's, that's no reason. And Revelation was considered non-canonical because of its authenticity. They didn't know if it was sure if John wrote it or not. And the doctrine of millennialism. This is interesting. You've got to understand from Augustine all the way up to the 18th century or 1800s, the main view of the church has been amillennialism. What's amillennialism? There is no future for Israel. We are Israel. 
What does Revelation clearly teach? There is a future for Israel. And so Revelation was, was objected by some on theological grounds because they didn't like the concept of the millennialism that it was teaching. That there was a literal kingdom for Israel in the future. Now again, you've got to understand, this does not mean that there was massive disputes over these. All right? There was not some big knockdown, drag out argument over this. There's not some big debate on these things. It's just when the question of revelation came up, like, like, let's pretend we were all one of those councils and we get to the book of Revelation and I say, you know, should revelation be included? And one or two of you question it. That's the issue here. It's not like half, half the people reject it and half the people accept it and it gets in on a 51-49 vote. That's not the way this works. It would be like one or two of you here or there just saying, you know, I really have a difficulty with it because of this reason. But in the end, it was considered canonical. You understand what's going on there? But those who wanted to reject it because of the doctrine of millennialism were not very good readers of their other scriptures, right. many of which point to millennial reign. Yeah, and that's all. We're going to get into that when we study eschatology in our class. That'll be fun. We'll talk about that. But, um, yeah, you're right. One of the problems that you have, that some people have, is they determine Scripture on the basis of their theology. All right? We've got to understand our theology is derived from Scripture. It does not determine what Scripture is. That make sense? Yeah, you've got to watch that. But that's why these were book, books were spoken against. And then there were some apocryphal writings, New Testament apocryphal writings, that were accepted as Scripture. Um, there's a here's some of these um, epistle to the Corinthians um, was written by Clement of Rome um, very good very good godly man very very solid person um, but again it's not scripture uh, the shepherd of Hermas was considered uh, canonical by Irenaeus and Origen um, two early church fathers but again it did not make it in the ultimate canon the Didache was held in high regard by the early church but again it was not considered canonical um, interesting Apocalypse of Peter was the origin of Dante's Inferno where you got that um, but th these books that you know they're, they're interesting and, and, and maybe there's some good points in them but when you look at them theologically they do not hang with the rest of scripture you got to understand, when we look at our 27 books and 39, 27 new, 39 old, there's a coherence to them. They, they hang together. There's no internal conflict. There's no internal contradictions. And everything is covered. It's not like we're missing pieces of information. What would your Bible be without Genesis? You wouldn't know where you came from. What would it be without Revelation? You wouldn't know where you're going. All right? The whole point is God's got us covered from the beginning to the end. Except you would because so many other scriptures tell you where you're going. Yeah, but not, not clearly. Not, not clearly like the book of Revelation. Revelation says God wins. I mean, he wins in the end. And the interesting thing, at the end of Revelation, think about this. At the end of Revelation, it says if anyone adds to the words of this prophecy, God's going to add to him the plagues written in them. And to subtract from the words of this prophecy, God's going to take your name out of the book of life. So what is that saying about the book of Revelation? You add to it. You add to it, you're adding to... Yeah. Now, what, well, chronologically, what was the last book written in the Bible? In our Bible? 
Revelation as the last one. So if you add Revelation, what are you adding to? The Scripture itself. You can't add to it. I, I believe that God put that in or the Holy Spirit put that in to say, look, I'm done talking. As far as Revelation is concerned, I am done talking. You've got, you, we've got it here. We've got, we've got God's Revelation here. We know what God has said to us. Our problem is now, what are we going to do about it? All right, we got it. We have it. The, the thing that I know is most people are going to The end. Uh, you don't have the uh, criteria for the canon. Well, again, when you look at the criteria, there is no solid scientific criteria. There's, there's five or six. Uh, to get to the short list. But once you get to the short list, you still got to determine which one of those do we accept. You know, like for example, like I think what you're talking about is, was it written by a prophet or an apostle or someone closely associated with an apostle or prophet? That gets you to the short list. The first one is inspired. Right. You know, how do you know it's inspired? Well, it says it's inspired. Does it claim inspiration? Um, was it accepted as inspired by the early church? They're short list questions, but ultimately there has to be a determination. And the thing, folks, is this. When you look at the first three to four hundred years of church history, these 27 books consistently and constantly bubble up to the top. Alright, there's not 28 of them that bubble up. And there's not 26 of them that bubble up. There's these 27 that bubble up to the top. And I think it's been confirmed later by us as we read the scripture, we have all that we need to know. We're not missing information. We've got God's revelation to us. And we've got to trust that God, the Holy Spirit, additionally inspired, not inspired, but superintended the collection and preservation of these 27. We have the scripture. All right? And when you look at the pseudepigrapha and the and apocryphal books and you start reading it, very quickly you see there's a marked difference between them and our scripture. There's a totally different it's just different I can't explain it the only thing I can tell you to do is go read it for yourself go read it for yourself well we've got uh, 10 minutes left so let's just start the next um, the next class the next section here just to get you wet your appetite and uh, we'll pick up with the rest of this um, discussion next week now one thing I'm going to tell you here is I've got 90 slides in this section, but we're not going to do all 90 of them, all right? We're not going to do that. We're going to pick and choose some of these here. We're not going to do them all because you don't want to be here till the end of the millennium, all right? So we're just going to look at some basic concepts here. Um, and there's going to be some here that I'm going to say, okay, you're going to skip the next 30 slides. Don't worry about that. If you really want to do that on your own, go for it, all right? But uh, we're going to not go through all of the slides. But... The point here, and this reason I bring this topic up here, when we talk about criticism and higher criticism, the reason we're going to talk about this, because this is really what you see on the Discovery Channel and History Channel when they're arguing about whether Galatians or Romans is Scripture or not, or whether Paul really wrote the book of Romans. That's the kind of baloney you see on the History Channel and the Discovery Channel. You get it constantly. Did Moses really write, Mo you know, write Genesis? Um, those kind of questions are what we are going to be talking about here. And what I want to do is give you some, some answers to those questions. Is how, how do we know that Paul really wrote this book? How do we know that what the Bible says is true? Because this is what's really being attacked constantly in our media. Um, and that's why we're going to talk about it. Now, we talk about criticism. Understand what criticism is. When we think of criticism, what do you think of? 
Yeah, but mostly in a negative sense, right? I'm being critical of someone. I'm being negative. I'm trying to nitpick. Okay, that's not what this word means in this context. What criticism means in this context is a critical, analytical look at to determine validity. That's what we're looking at here. All right, it's not negative. It's a positive thing. Okay, so don't think it's all negative. There are two kinds of criticism that you see in the literature and you're going to hear on you know, the TV and things like that. One's called lower and one's called higher criticism. Lower and higher criticism. When you talk about lower criticism, we're going to talk about this a little bit so you understand what's going on. Lower criticism deals with issues of the text. What does it say? All right. For example, if you are a lower critical person, you're, you're trying to determine what is the Word of God? How do I translate this scripture? And how do I determine what the original was? If I've got a pile of manuscripts, how do I determine which one is the most accurate of the, of the readings, of the variations here? That's what a lower critical person does. That's what a textual critic does. And as a textual critic, your job is to as accurately and clearly as you can determine the original text of scripture. And by using the methodologies that we have today, we can get the original back to within just a small percentage point of what it really was. Again, we talk about 99.9996 pure, like ivory soap. All right. Um, when you, if we were to take the book of Romans and show it to Paul, he would, he would might make a couple of word changes. But other than that, we've got the identical thing that he had when it came off his pen. All right. So we're not talking about vast differences here. And your job as a lower or a textual critic is to determine the original text. You don't ask theological questions. This is not. There's no theology here at this point. Your job is to determine what does the original text say. Not say, well, I believe God is this, so I'm going to add it to the text. That's what the Jehovah Witnesses did. See, they denied that Jesus is God, so they added. They took rid of the deity of Christ. They got rid of that in their translation. That's not the way this works. The way this works is you want to determine what is the original text. That's your job. All right? Higher criticism includes everything else. Who wrote the book? When was it written? Is it authentic? All of those questions come into play when you talk about higher criticism. That has to deal with, time, with questions of historicity, questions of canon, questions of authorship. All of those have to do with higher criticism. Now, when you talk about this, and, and um, I don't want to confuse anybody here, but I want you to—I want to try to define some of these words because these are the kinds of things you hear or see happening when you when you watch TV um, talking about this. There is a form of higher criticism called redaction criticism. What is a redactor? Rewriting, an editor—that's what it is. An editor, a redactor is a fancy word for editor, somebody who edits, okay? And redaction criticism sees the scripture as not being the product of an author, but the product of an editor. What does editors do? What do editors do? They correct, they pull together, they recreate things. That's what redaction criticism does, all right? And what this basically says is that our manuscript, for example, a, redact, a person who's a redaction critic would say Luke did not write Luke. 
It was not written by a single author. Rather, what you had is an editor who took some of this and some of that and some of that and edited together what we call Luke. But it was not written by Luke. All right? That's what a redaction critic would do. They see the scripture as, and this is the important thing, it's evolved. That's the whole point here. Scripture evolved. There was an evolution. As the church defined theology, they would go back and edit the scripture to include that theology. So that what you have is an edited text, not an original, inerrant text. You see what's going on here. Alright? This is really done with the Gospels. They go hog wild. By the way, this is the whole thing behind the Jesus Seminar. Do you read that? Where you got uh, Robert Funk and the Gospel of Thomas and all of that stuff. That's the whole thing behind that. that they see the Gospel writers as not authors, but editors. And it really probably wasn't Luke at all. It was some other guy who just took the name of Luke to make us think it was him. All right? Um, and basically, the starting point of all this is, what is, the, what is the starting assumption when you go down this path? What are you assuming? The Bible's not the Word of God. It is not inspired. It is not the work of an author. Rather, it is the work of a bunch of editors who not only took the traditions and took the sayings of Jesus and all that, but then they took their own theology that developed, that evolved, this theology evolved, and produced what we see today. All right? And this is really one of the drivers behind the History Channel and Discovery Channel. Whenever, if they do anything on the Gospels, or they do anything on the life of Christ, guess where they start? Right here with this concept. And the whole question is, we don't know who the historical Jesus is because he, he, the, the Jesus of the Bible is not the historical Jesus. It was a Jesus that was created by this process of editing and re-editing and embellishing over a period of time so that we don't even know who the real Jesus is. You know, the, the liberal Protestant churches are embracing this also. This, oh, yeah. Which is why we left our, our church and landed here a few years ago. Oh, is that because you're... Would you say your your pastor said you don't you don't really believe the Bible's the word of God, do you? Right, right. We were in a Bible study and uh, he started the first few weeks and he's criticizing it like this and uh, we just became appalled. We couldn't believe we could sit in a church that uh, the pastor believed this. Mm-hmm. This is this is relevant, folks. I'm not giving you anything here that's not important. This is this is the kind of stuff you're going to run into. All right. Redaction critics see this as, see the scripture as being um, edited. Another kind of criticism is form criticism. You see this a lot in the gospel narratives. And uh, it, it's sort of like um, redaction criticism, but what it sees is, it sees literature as a series of genre. You know what genre is, like historical narrative, story, parable, things like that. And so what this is trying to do is determine the original stories behind the story that we have. See what are going on with this? In other words, John really didn't know. He was not really contemporary of Jesus. He just took a bunch of traditions that were floating around, stories, and edited them together and out pops our Gospel of John or Gospel of Luke or Gospel of Mark. The emphasis here is on literary genre. And this, along with redaction criticism, is driving... The Jesus Seminar. This is an interesting thing. And we'll stop with this. Go out and do an internet search on the Q document. Q document comes from the um, word quell. Q-U-E-L-L-E. And basically what is a source. Alright? 
And the Jesus Seminar, who are this group of scholars that get together to determine what Jesus really said and what the Gospels really, you know, what part of the Gospels are really from Jesus and what aren't, have hypothesized that there's this mythical cube document which are the sayings of Jesus. And the sayings of Jesus were used by Mark and Luke and Matthew when they wrote their Gospels. They have this thing called the sayings of Jesus that they edited into their final form. Now, here's the interesting thing. No one has ever found the Q document as a document. But they, with their great ingenuity from 2,000 years after the fact, have been able to determine what the Q document really was. So you can actually go out and read their Q document, a mythical document that never existed in the church, but they have concocted in order to lend credence to their discipline. There's no such thing as a Q document, folks. We're going to talk about this, by the way, next week. When Matthew wrote Matthew, he was a contemporary, wasn't he? He didn't have to resort to reading history. He was there. He was a disciple. He saw the things. Luke. Luke was with Paul. Luke saw these things. Mark. He was with Peter. John. John was a contemporary. He was there the whole time. He didn't write from... You know, somebody, he didn't say, I need a Q document to remind me what Jesus said. He knew what Jesus said because he was there. This is all a bunch of baloney, folks. But let me tell you something. It is what is behind a lot of the stuff you see on TV today. And that's why we're going to go over it a little bit, just so you understand and, and are assured when we're done with this that, listen, when, you look, when the Bible says, you know, Matthew wrote Matthew, you don't need to worry about that. He wrote it. You don't need to be concerned that somehow we missed that. You're going to say something. Yeah, it, it just strikes me during all this study that men have worked so hard to get to this point. Yeah. And they have preferred the word. But then yeah. I have to remind myself they're coming from a pagan mindset. Sure. Yeah. We're coming from... Um, and if you reject the Bible as the word of God, you've got to come up with some explanation other than an infinite God inspired it. You've got to come up with something else. And that's what you do. You come up with this stuff. Because you don't like the truth. So, Alright, we have to stop there. We'll pick it up next week. And um, let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this day and for granting us this opportunity of study. I pray that you would guide us now as we think about it. And bring us back safely next week in Christ's name. Amen.